This is a Relay Project. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. We thank you for joining us on this Thursday edition of Real Talk Jesperson and Hicks on this August 25th. It's Thursday. I'm uh, looking forward uh, so much uh, to speaking with Elamine Abdul Mahmoud, who's uh, coming up in about a half hour from now. Uh, forgiving student loans isn't a slap in the face, reads the headline of his uh, newest piece for BuzzFeed News, where he's a senior culture writer. You can check it out at BuzzFeed's buzzfeednews.com this uh published uh, by elamine on the heels of the announcement yesterday american president joe biden uh, says americans making less than 125 grand a year will be eligible for forgiveness of up to ten thousand dollars of their federal student loans i know how some people are going to feel about this I know how others are going to feel about it. I'm curious to know how you feel about it. You can get in touch with us if you're checking this out live in our live chat on YouTube. Maybe you want to hit us up on Twitter later, the hashtag RealTalkRJ, or send us an email. Uh, Some folks, Johnny, are going to say, it's not fair that we saved up. My parents contributed to RESPs. We did everything we had to do. Mm -hmm. I applied for and secured scholarships. I went through all the efforts, and then somebody else is just going to have their student loans forgiven it's just not fair other people are going to say student loan debt is crippling to some people it crushes their five or ten or fifteen or twenty years post-graduation and and has them facing an uphill climb especially in a situation where i think debt load right now is is more significant for younger populations than it has been in previous generations was student loan debt? We haven't talked about this before. Wanted to save it for on air. Wanted to make it awkward. For me, on it air. wasn't a problem. But my sister went to seven years of law school. She's oh, wow. still in debt from it. Uh, she went into law for like a year or two. Uh, got pregnant, had a kid. Uh, her husband makes makes good money, so she got out of it. So it was basically useless to her. And uh, now she's paying off her debt still. So I don't know why you would want to keep crippling people with it if if we can get rid of some of it let's do it who cares the the optics the politics and the optics of it might be a bit delicate president Mm -hmm. biden when he was talking about this and elamine writes about it we'll get into it when he joins us in just a bit um, talks about he says we don't want these to be loans forgiven for people that went to you know yale and princeton Mm -hmm. and harvard and sort of invokes that ivy league uh, reality to say, you know, we don't this want this for, to be, yeah. you know, the, the so-called privileged class or, or the elites or the one percent. Well, my uh, sister definitely the money back here. was not privileged. So, yeah, it, it's still. Yeah, she'll be paying it off for years to come. Elamine himself. I yeah. mean, he writes about it. He gets personal in this piece. He says he owed 45 G's in loans when he got out of school. And he says he was able to pay it off over the course of 10 years mm-hmm. uh, by working hard in his retail job, says he had some help from family. But but even that 10 years post-graduation, that's a significant <laughs> commitment for a lot of people. A it's lot of gonna... the things you've learned, depending what you're, you know, what you're studying, is it even relevant 10 years later? You're still mm. paying it off? Like, is, that's crazy. It'll prompt other conversations, too. This is one of the reasons why it's great fodder for talk shows is it'll prompt conversations about going even further. Right. Like forgiving all student loan debt, not Mm -hmm. just 10 grand or some people will point to models. I hope I'm right in my reference. I'm pretty like it's a lot of the Scandinavian countries. And I know in other places around the world, they have this as well, where post-secondary schooling is free. Yeah, it's covered Mm -hmm. if you want to attend post-secondary. I mean, it it benefits the population. It benefits the society to have 
people that are that are more well educated, that are better prepared to to you know make advancements in their careers and and give back, so to speak. But at what cost? Mm-hmm. And we know that obviously post secondary funding is something that that strikes a chord with a lot of people. We see that locally in in provincial and in federal politics, most especially in provincial politics. And then, of course, in big picture stuff like this, the conversations about loans, student loans and loan forgiveness. A lot of people can relate to it. It, It's it's relevant to a lot of people who either had their student loans uh, and have now uh, sort of you can look at them in the rearview mirror because you worked hard to pay them off. Uh, or you paid them off over time, and then and then others of you, who knows? Maybe some of our younger Real Talk audience members are currently filling out their student loan applications right now at the beginning stages of their career, wanting to do everything that they can to to ensure that they can get their foot in the door in in vocational school, technical school, college, university, whatever's the right fit for you. Speaking of which, by the way, we're not ready to make an official announcement, but I do want to let the friends of Real Talk know that our editorial board met just a couple of evenings ago and selected the inaugural recipient of the Real Talk Julie Rohr Scholarship. And we're going to be making that announcement about that $5,000 contribution to the post-secondary education of a of a young Real Talk audience member, an applicant, and we'll be able to introduce you uh, to that individual once we do make the announcement. It's an exciting time, and it's a very meaningful uh, legacy project for us, of course, as well. In just a second, we're going to talk to Rod Giltaka. And if you pay attention to to items in the news, if you pay attention to some of the stakeholders and the public commentators, if you've been focusing on the testimony in particular from RCMP Commissioner Brenda Lucky at the Mass Casualty Commission this following the 2020, the April 2020 mass shooting in Nova Scotia, that horrific tragedy, the nation was waiting to hear from the RCMP commissioner, a highly anticipated witness, due uh, largely in part to allegations that there was political interference in the whole, I mean, can I call it a mess, in the RCMP's handling of this from the communications in particular. People are talking about, you know, relationships uh, between and or communications between Federal Minister Bill Blair, the Prime Minister's office, the RCMP Commissioner H Division in Nova Scotia. And we've been learning a little bit more through Commissioner Lucky's testimony. I took it on yesterday. I was pretty direct in, in, in how I felt gobsmacked about, uh, you know, her what, what seemed to be her lacking a grasp of Canada's gun laws. And we heard from many of you yesterday following my comments, some of you uh, you know, essentially declared them to be a bullseye. You said this is bang on. The commentaries is fair, and this is what people need to hear. And others of you took pause and said, "We're not sure you're approaching this reasonably, or we're not sure you're being fair about this." And we appreciate those comments as well. So we want to get to some of those. We want to integrate those into the conversation today. Now we know where Rod's coming from. He's the CEO of the Canadian Coalition for Firearm Rights. Uh, And so he's got his own bias and he's going to come on here and talk about his perspective on this. Uh, They make no bones about it. They're pretty clear about how they feel about it. Uh, The Canadian Coalition for Firearm Rights insists that Commissioner Lucky needs to step down. They want Bill Blair, Minister Bill Blair, to step down. They believe that there has undeniably been political interference. I'll let Rod make the case for himself. But I'm also going to get to an email from Minnie, a real talker who was in touch with us yesterday, and Dennis, a lawyer who tweeted at me uh, to provide some other angles on this, other perspectives, the other side of the coin, so to speak. Uh, so you have as much information as possible as you form your decisions on this. It's something that may not be directly relevant to people in their everyday life, the structure or the, the workings or the health of the culture at the RCMP, but it certainly matters. 
and it's certainly relevant to greater society. You know, a side angle, John, you've probably noticed the more that we talk about the RCMP and the cultural challenges that Canada's National Police Service is facing, the more we're also hearing from members of our Western Canadian audience, in particular audience members from our home province of Alberta, Mm -hmm. that are letting us know that that this is having some impact or even curious asking us if it's having an impact on our thought process around this proposed provincial police force that Alberta Premier Jason Kenney's been talking about, mm-hmm. modeling it after the OPP in Ontario or what have you. So a lot of angles to pursue on this. It's why these conversations are ongoing and oftentimes on a show like this stretch over a period of days, uh, weeks, or even months. Before we get to Rod Giltaka, why don't we give you, we'll bring you up to speed for those of you that didn't have a chance to to tune into or catch the extended coverage around this mass casualty commission. Uh, Brenda Lucky, the RCMP commissioner, talking yesterday uh, about some of the implications, some of the, some of the, you know, through that nightmarish period where these shootings were occurring. You'll remember it was over two different days, about 13 hours in total. Citizens, uh, Nova Scotians in particular, not necessarily given the information that could have been very helpful that, quite frankly, could have probably prevented some of the murders that occurred, like the fact that the gunman was driving a replica police car uh, wearing replica police uniform. Uh, the type of gun or the type of firearms that were used through this, the number of fatalities that had occurred. This is Commissioner Brenda Lucky yesterday talking about some of the challenges around the communications. This is what she had to say at the MCC. In general, my comms people were extremely frustrated because they wanted the communications in H Division to be more transparent, more forthright, try to provide more information. It was frustrating when even in one of the media releases, I, we were talking about the number of deceased and my number was different than the media's number that was different than the H Division number, which we got the information from H Division. So it was very confusing why, why different informations were being given when I don't make up the information. I just get the information through my comms people. I repeat the information in a media event. Normally in an event like this, there would be two to three briefing notes or situational reports per day. Um, I think I received maybe three in eight to ten days. So the flow of communication wasn't at the normal pace that is usual for an event such as this or for any major event. So there was some frustration being experienced, me giving the wrong information to the Minister's Chief of Staff, the Deputy Minister and the National Security Advisor was yet another example of that. Okay, now there has been testimony counter to some of what the RCMP Commissioner has been saying. There have been other uh, people formerly in position of leadership, in particular in Nova Scotia's RCMP structure, that have said in, in their mind, in their estimation, there was political interference. They, they were ordered to release certain information or to cooperate to a certain degree. And it's got people asking questions and, and fair ones at that. Now, the bigger picture that this is a public inquiry, the, the bigger picture that a lot of Canadians are going to care about is is what adjustments Uh, What changes has the RCMP made in light of this or in the wake of this uh, with with the with the the review of this and looking back on the standards, the procedures and and what happened that that stretches from communication to how different police officers or law enforcement officers were deployed to when support was called in and the like. Brenda Lockie, the commissioner of the RCMP, asked if changes had been made to training in the wake of the 2020 mass shooting. And here's what she said yesterday. 
can you tell me specifically, are you aware of any plans to review training or have you reviewed training in regards to this mass casualty? Not specifically and not yet. Obviously, we're waiting. Some of that is waiting till we get the report. Others, if there is anything specific that, like I said, that is high risk um, and that our members need to uh, know or our new members need to know, it will be put into the um, core training standards uh, before the recommendations. All right, so you're hoping that the recommendations of this commission are going to be dynamic enough to cover, for example, IARD formation, IARD training, when and when not to send in a second team. Is that your is no, that your belief? We don't need the recommendations to be that granular. If there is a, for example, we've already looked at our IR training since the mass casualty. Um, I know that they've reviewed it and made some changes. I don't. Please don't ask me what they were. I don't know what they are. Um, I know that they've looked at them and and uh, adjusted it to some of the things that were discovered in in the testimonies and in the reviews. Um, Anything that comes out that raises a red flag of a high risk, it's going to go come back through. We're reviewing it. We're going to get to Rod Giltaka on this in just a second, and then we're going to get to some of your comments. And we encourage you as you're hearing this, you may be hearing this later on this Thursday. Maybe you're going to hear this podcast this weekend. Maybe you're going to hear it into next week. We welcome your feedback as you process uh, what you're hearing through this public inquiry and, and, and essentially your thoughts, a bigger picture on the state of the RCMP and its relationship with the federal government, among other issues. Rod Giltaka in just a second. Right now, we want to let you know that Apex Automation is putting the call out to engineers across the country. If you're feeling like you have more to give to your company, if you're feeling like you'd, you'd prefer your relationships with your clients to be relationships that bring out the best in you, that help you develop or maximize the potential of your career and give your clients back their time. If the idea or the opportunity to provide intuitive, fully autonomous solutions to industry is the type of jam that could get you up for work every single day, excited to be part of a team, quite frankly, if you feel unfulfilled or underappreciated where you're bringing your talents every day right now, take a look at apexautomation.ca under the careers link. You can see the opportunities available right now, but keep in mind, they're always hiring. They've been growing their team like mad over the past few years. Apex Automation, a proud Real Talk sponsor. Our friends at Friesen Brothers, 16 locations across the province of Alberta, want to remind you about a local food drive that they have going on this weekend. Now, we know that not everybody that hears this will be around, but if you happen to be in our home city, the capital city of Alberta, Edmonton, on Saturday, August 27th, from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m., they're running the Edmonton Food Bank Drive and Barbecue. So for a monetary or food item donation, you can receive a Smokey and a Pop, and you can help out Edmonton's Food Bank just ahead of that back-to-school rush. If you're making food donations, healthy school snacks are great. They're looking for things like baby formula, peanut butter, canned fish or meat. You can find out more details at Friesen.com. And... If you're feeling like maybe a change in location might do the body good, if you're feeling like you might want to live in life-changing luxury, but you don't have the two-plus million dollars it would take to get the keys to a dream home, why not pick up tickets to the Covenant Foundation Lottery today? 30 years of life-changing wins. This year's dream home, stunning 
on Hayes Ridge Boulevard in Edmonton, Alberta. 5,400 square feet, John. Four bedrooms, five bathrooms, rec room, gym, three-car garage, backyard patio, botanical room, and fully furnished, ready to move in. Your ticket purchase will help further many of the life-saving healthcare initiatives that are provided at the Misericordia and Grey Nuns Hospital. You can get your ticket. Make sure you do it before September 1st to qualify for the early bird at covenantfoundationlottery.ca. Before we get to Rod Giltaka, I recognize that some of you have already heard this audio clip that we're going to play next, but it sets the table for the conversation, and I think it's important. We played it yesterday. This was the one that, I'll be honest, stopped me in my tracks. This is the one that blew me back on my heels a little bit. This is the RCMP's commissioner, Brenda Lockie, essentially saying that, that she doesn't know Canada's gun laws intimately, and it got a lot of people's attention, I think, for obvious reasons. Here it is. And as the, as the, uh, the, the head of the firearms program in Canada, presumably you understand that uh, without a, a PAL, either either restricted or non-restricted, um, in any way that that perpetrator is in possession of firearms, it's a criminal offense. Yes. And to the extent that he acquires ammunition is a criminal offense. Yes. And to the extent that any license holder uh, knowingly uh, assists him in acquiring the materials used as part of his... Uh, I don't... I'm... I'm I, I... I have to say, I don't know those laws intimately. I, I'm, if, if you're, I know that there are obviously illegalities when you are, don't have the proper licensing. I know that. Whether the, the restricted, the prohibited, uh, what people can and cannot do with a license, I, I don't intimately know those. But I, what you're saying, I'm, I'm trusting that it's, it's true. So it wasn't a great look, right? At least it doesn't appear to be to, to members of, of the general public and to many pretty prominent media commentators. If you're following this at all, you know that. Dennis Buchanan's a labor and employment lawyer, practices in Alberta and Ontario, and he, he reached out to me yesterday on Twitter. I really appreciate his feedback, and he said, listen, while there are elements of Commissioner Lucky's performance that are less than impressive, he says I'd be charitable on this. The Firearms Act is, is about a 21,000-word document of dense legal drafting plus 17 regulations of varying length and complexity. And that's just one RCMP-relevant statute. He says, while saying she doesn't know them intimately might be a poor choice of words, I wouldn't expect her to be able to articulate the act's requirements in any comprehensive way from memory. Says Dennis, even lawyers seldom give opinions on a statute's effect without reviewing the statute let's find out what our first guest has to say about this rod giltaka is the ceo executive director of the canadian coalition for firearms rights uh, he's uh, owned one of canada's best known firearm training companies still an instructor in good standing with the rcmp canadian firearms program he's trained thousands of canadians making his real talk debut today thanks for making time for us rod welcome to the show thanks ryan what do you make of commissioner lucky's comments there specifically about firearms legislation? And, and what do you make, for that matter, of, of lawyer Dennis Buchanan's uh, rebuttal to my statements yesterday? Well, it's not unusual for law enforcement to not know the law. I mean, if, if you're thinking about a general duty member, you know, that's sort of driving around in a police car all day, they're generalists, right? They're not they're not lawyers. And the criminal code, I would have chosen the criminal code as a, as a, uh, um, a little more of a, a better comparison because it's over a thousand pages. The Firearms Act is a pretty small a uh, pretty small set of regulations. But like I said, it's not unusual for police to not know. I think the 
the uh, the salient point or the 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 real rubbing point here of this whole thing is that this is the commissioner of the RCMP. She's attending a hearing where she's going to be questioned on these things. She's also the commissioner of firearms for Canada as well. Um, and I think it would have been uh, it would have behooved her to look into these things before she appeared. Uh, to the uh, to the commission, I would imagine. Rod, for people that aren't one hundred percent familiar with the Canadian Coalition for Firearm Rights, is it is it accurate to say you're like Canada's NRA? Is that how you describe it? Well, I definitely wouldn't describe that because firearm ownership uh, in Canada is not not similar to the United States almost in any way. Mm. Um, but as far as our organization is concerned, we're not we're very dissimilar from the NRA because owning firearms in Canada. The reasons you can own them, how they're obtained, uh, our our regulatory structure couldn't be more different from the United States. So we're the, uh, I guess you could call us the reasonable gun lobby. We we think that there's a place for regulation, but that regulation has to have a direct relationship to public safety, not just be punitive against people that would be so bold as to get a firearms license. Uh- Commissioner Lucky told an inquiry a couple of days ago, this this MCC that uh, concerns over political interference in the police investigation have been overgrown. She said that she's getting frustrated with questions on the subject. Now, obviously, she's been previously questioned. I think people know by a parliamentary committee investing allegations that she had tried to use the tragedy to boost support for the liberals gun control agenda. It's pretty obvious why you and your group would have an interest in this commission and in her testimony, what's really struck you as significant over the past couple of days? Well, I think that people have seen so many scandals and so many uh, ethical breaches by this liberal government. I hate to call them liberal because I used to vote liberal when they were a centrist party. And and this is not your your grandparents' liberal party or your parents' liberal party. Um, but I think, I think people are so desensitized from the the sheer volume of scandals and ethical breaches that they don't really, um, I think it, it's, it escapes some people what's going on here. There was the largest mass shooting in Canadian history, and it was, it was absolutely brutal. And then of course, an investigation begins and it was, it's a very complex investigation with multiple crime scenes, something that the RCMP probably has never even seen before as an organization. And it's really important to the families of people that were affected by this tragedy for them to get justice, meaning that people that provided the firearms, people that smuggled the firearms, people that were involved in this in this thing all be brought to justice because that's part of healing. That's really important. And for the RCMP commissioner to want the public to be to, you know, that the, the most important thing within two weeks after, you know, this happened, the most important thing is I, I need all this information released that would actually truly jeopardize that investigation. Because remember, we didn't know how this individual got his firearms and the people even in the United States that aided and abetted him in in obtaining these firearms, they hadn't been caught yet. That investigation probably hadn't even been launched across the border. So it truly did have an impact on the investigation and the idea that they would jeopardize that, 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 you know, that ability for the families to obtain justice for political reasons to help the the liberals push gun control it's it's pretty obscene do you believe that testimony has has been damning enough or perhaps i should say revealing enough that's a little less editorial 
um, to support the claim that there was political interference. We've seen some former top RCMP brass essentially say that in their estimation or in their interpretation or their experience that there was interference. And then I just quoted reporting by Greg Mercer in the Globe and Mail from two days ago. Commissioner Lucky says she's getting tired of the questions, says there was nothing of the sort. I mean, obviously, I know you feel that there was uh, your organization's been very clear about that. You've called for the commissioner's resignation. You've called for Minister Bill Blair's resignation. But what have you heard over the past couple of days, the past number of days, uh, that you think supports your position on this? Well, everyone has lined up, including the assistant commissioner of the RCMP, and said, yeah, this is exactly what was going on. So it's not my opinion. It's the opinion of pretty much everyone that was in the, in the meeting in question uh, where she uh, tried to and bully basically uh, everyone into the meeting to jeopardize their integrity and jeopardize the investigation in order to help her help the liberals. So it's it's not my opinion. It's pretty much everybody else. And and I think I think what shouldn't be lost on people is look at the risk that Darren Campbell and Chris Leather and and uh, and Scanlon and everyone else that was in that meeting that came forward. These are not you know rank and file members that can just go find another job. Mm. These are people that have built a career over a lifetime and are willing to throw it all away, risk it all to bring bring the the truth to the surface. And that's I think we need to stand behind people that have that kind of courage, because, you know, while we all say that we would have that courage to do what's right, you know, it's not not everybody will do that. And and they all lined up and said the same thing. So, you know, it's starting to get pretty clear who's doing lying here. And no kidding. And of course, she's she's tired of answering questions. You would be, too, if your feet were being held to the fire for an ethical breach. So, so egregious. Rod, from your position or the position of your organization, what's at stake here? Well, I mean, for our organization, it's it's I mean, we are under full full attack and we have been since the liberals got into power. Um, we, you know, Canadians have owned firearms in this country since before Canada was a country. And as it applies to handguns, even. We've owned handguns for a hundred years. This firearm ownership and sports shooting and hunting and recreational shooting, this is nothing new. There's nothing, nothing has changed. There's almost virtually no connection between licensed gun owners and firearm related violence. But this particular uh, set of politicians that are in power right now want to create this connection, want to use us as a, as a way to divide Canadians and use gun owners as the boogeyman and and, and mobilize their base by saying, hey, we're going to crack down on all these people that aren't responsible for firearm related violence. I mean, this has just got to stop. And, and I mean, it's not it's not only gun control. Right. It's a lot of different aspects of of our society where we've experienced this division, this pitting against each other for political gain. It's it's a strange time, Ryan. And, and I hope we can. I hope it starts to slow down and come to an end. I want to put my cards on the table here for the benefit of the audience and, and you know, to you. I don't have statistical data in front of me. This is, an, is a comment based on my anecdotal observations. Uh, when we take a look at mass shootings in the United States, uh, many of them, if not most of them, and again, I don't have statistics in front of me, but many of them are committed in particular by younger people, in particular, it seems by younger men who have acquired the firearms legally, Rod. And I know that right out of the gates, when I asked you if your group is Canada's NRA, you were quick to point out, you said we're kind of like the reasonable gun lobby. Uh, you wanted to draw that line between the two of you. But it's a, it's, it's, it's a very indelicate position, I think. As a matter of fact, I think I think that the NRA is, is, is almost... Uh, 
crass. I think that they're gross in, in the opportunism that they display in banging their drum and lobbying for their priorities in the wake of mass shootings. But people in the United States and around the world try to wrap their minds how an angry young man, 18 years of age, at first legal opportunity to buy a, uh, you know, an assault rifle, or I know you may not prefer the phrase, but that's what people anecdotally call them or colloquially call them, can get his hands on hundreds of rounds of ammunition and, and a handgun and a rifle and, you know, a body armor and walk into a school and, and perpetrate mass murder. In Canada, it seems to be a different conversation. And Erica asks a question on our live chat right now, and she wonders, you know, isn't the most important question how many gun crimes are committed with legally acquired firearms and how many are committed with illegal or smuggled firearms? And I know that is an important question. It has a lot of people invoking ideas around like municipal or a federal handgun ban and things along those lines. Um, Before I thank you for your time, I'd be curious to have you address Erica's comment and maybe provide some of your thoughts around what I'm exploring here. Well, uh, first thing is I can't answer for the NRA. I can't answer for things that happen in the United States. In the United States, you can you can buy a semi-automatic rifle um, just if you're over 18 in most states and have no felony record. So it's it's completely different. And there's a there's a cultural anomaly happening in the, in the United States that doesn't seem to be happening in other countries as well. So, you know. I, People, people that are proponents of gun control always want to pull in the United States because it is an outlier in that in that way. You know, Iceland, for example, has the same number of guns per hundred people as Canada does. And they had basically no shootings a couple of years ago, not a single one. Right. So you have to ask yourself, what's the difference? They have lots of guns. Canadians have lots of guns, nowhere near as many as the United States. Right. But these countries that are at peer level have different levels of firearm related violence. And so you have to ask yourself, what's the difference? It's clearly not the number of guns. And, and those, are, those are questions that people have to ask themselves when they're engaging and talking about these topics. But uh, to answer the question about the connection with licensed gun owners, I would just reference what Chief Raymer uh, of the Toronto Police Service said. He said clearly, and we've posted this everywhere, that licensed gun owners are not the problem in firearm-related violence in Toronto. It is guns smuggled from the United States and used in gang culture and other criminal activity in the city. And so that's a microcosm. I I guess it's kind of a a really good example. It's an extreme example of firearm related violence and the reasons, the root causes of that. Okay, so so I'm sure you, you wouldn't argue against better or more effective intelligence gathering and policing of illegally imported or acquired firearms, right? I mean, that's something I would imagine that a group like you would want to assist law enforcement in combating it's a better look for an advocacy group or a lobby group like you what's one a lot of people are going to say well listen rod giltaka comes on here big surprise he's got the liberals in his crosshairs there's going to be liberal bashing through this interview what's something what's 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 a positive contribution to the conversation on behalf of you or your organization that you think would be a good step forward in addressing some of these root causes of gun violence in canada i i am a liberal ryan you're a card-carrying liberal <laughs> no, like member I, is that right I, I live by liberal values. It's okay. just I don't identify with this group of people that have that are running the Liberal Party because it's it's not liberal, and you know that's that's a separate political discussion. Um, but I think what people need to remember is firearm violence is at the end of the day it's violence, right? So if we if we attack the root causes of violence, we'll have not only less firearm related violence, but we'll have less violence altogether. 
like a, out of, of, of all violent crime, every, every violent crime that happens in Canada, all told, 3% of them involve a firearm. So it's quite rare as it is, but it's very spectacular when it happens. And, and when I say these things, I'm not saying it to, for a good look. I want a safer Canada too. Both my kids are adults. They live in downtown Vancouver, right downtown. You know, I want a safer Canada. I don't want people shot, but you got to think about it in these terms. It's, there's a story circulating around about a guy who smuggled 250 handguns into Canada. He was out of jail in a year, but I'm going to lose my firearms as a, as a result of firearm-related violence. It's, it's ridiculous. So the more that you look into this topic, the more you start to see that people like me aren't the bad guy. I'm saying go, go tackle violent crime and get out of the lives of people that are contributing law-abiding members of society. Again, this is nothing new. We've had guns forever. This is the What's new here is the politics around it. Rod Giltak is the CEO of the Canadian Coalition for Firearm Rights. You can check him out online at firearmrights.ca. Rod, thanks for making time for us. We appreciate it. I appreciate it, Ryan. We're going to get to Elamine Abdul-Makmoud in just a second. Uh, I did want to read this email from many. I, I mean, I see a lot of your comments online in our live chat. You know, we're, we're playing these clips and we're, we're doing our best to be fair. We're not clipping Brenda Lucky for six seconds or four seconds. See, a lot of newscasts will do this, right? They get somebody kind of deer in headlights for four seconds. We want to bring you 20 or 30 or 40 or 60 seconds of what she had to say for the context. And many of you are saying, I don't know about this. I mean, it just appears to me like Tony, Tony says she she says it just appears to me that the commissioner's out of her depth. Like she's not coming across as somebody that she has that has a strong grasp of her organization. Kathy says, how on earth does the commissioner not know what changes have been implemented? Like, does she actually pay attention to what's happening with the police force uh, from Kathy? So Minnie sends me an email yesterday. She says, uh, I like this, by the way. She says, let me say how much I enjoy the show. She says, I, I get through almost all the episodes. I found a few of your guests that I don't find worth a listen, though. I love it. That's great. We can't hit home runs every single day, Minnie, but we'll do our best. She says this morning, she's talking about Wednesday, your discussion about this mass casualty commission and the many questions and criticisms about the testimony of Commissioner Lucky. Um, uh, she says, no, I, I did, like others, wonder why she wasn't in uniform. Perhaps that was meant to communicate something. But she says, but there's another question. And maybe because I'd listened to your previous day's conversation with Senator Paula Simons. What a great chat that was. Minnie says, I can jump to conclusions as quickly as the next person, but I need to remind myself to ask questions instead. So here's one. What kind of pressure or how much pressure is or was being applied to the commissioner to dissemble? You know, if the senator is correct, and I do believe her because I hear stories too. Number one. Women with even the most insignificant levels of power or influence are chronically hated and threatened. And just think for a second on where the commissioner stands on that ladder. Minnie says, number two, women with expectations that their experiences of threat will be taken seriously often feel dismissed. And in many circumstances, dismissed by police, you know, the very agency that Commissioner Lucky oversees. And number three, women who find themselves in positions of authority over men not just, but especially in masculine or potentially misogynistic cultures like law enforcement, like the military, very oftentimes find themselves tokenized, disregarded, dismissed, disrespected, belittled, threatened, or worse. That's our Friday roundtable, by the way, tomorrow. You don't want to miss it. Minnie says, and unable or, 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 or disallowed to do the job that they're there to do, unable to do anything about what I just mentioned. And in such a hostile culture, the worst of the misogynists would have such a female leader exactly where they wanted her. 
It would be easy to disrespect Commissioner Lucky for not being as brave as former White House aide Cassidy Hutchinson, for example. Remember, she testified on the January 6th hearings. But we don't know what has been said or done to her in obscure corners or behind closed doors. Many raps by saying, I don't favor the Alberta government's proposal to create a provincial police force. But when I hear all the stuff that goes on behind the shiny facade of the RCMP, I could almost be persuaded to change my mind. But then who would staff this new force? Where would the culture change or the attitude change come from? Minnie says, you keep asking the hard questions, I'll keep showing up. I love it. Thanks for your email, Minnie. Appreciate it. We'll put that in the hopper as a candidate for our email of the month for the month of August. We give away a official Real Talk studio mug to one audience member every single month that really catches our attention or gets us thinking with their email. Elamine, in just a second, quickly, I want to remind you that there has never been a better time for you to pursue your sustainable energy goals at home than right now. Why? Because the federal government's got that $40,000 interest-free loan up for grabs right now. It's the Canada Greener Homes Loan. There are no strings attached. 40 grand interest-free to get solar panels up on your roof. The team at Kubi Energy is ready to do the paperwork for you, and they're ready with Canada's best installers to get your home as green or as close to net zero as possible right now. You can select your free quote today or check out the different projects. You want to browse their work, their portfolio. You'll find them online at kubienergy.ca. Once you got solar on your roof, it's a great time to reevaluate what you're paying when your home needs the natural gas or the electricity, maybe through those winter months. And while you're at it, Internet 2, Park Power provides all three as your friendly local utilities provider. And if you bundle those services, you're going to save a whole bunch on admin costs. You already know you can compare rates today at parkpower.ca, so why not do it? Everybody's talking about cost of living on the rise. That's a real challenge. Elamine and I will get into that in just a second. Why not save yourself a few bucks right now at parkpower.ca? The promo code 2022-REALTALK knocks $70 off your first bill. And if you're you're looking to downsize your ride right now you're looking at the price at the pumps and you're realizing maybe you don't need all that heavy horsepower that you've had for quite some time the team at sherwood dodge is in the business of finding you a perfect fit so whether you're downsizing into something more fuel efficient maybe it's a four-cylinder maybe it's an ev or maybe you're going in the opposite direction you need something to pull your trailer you need a four-wheel drive to get you ready for the winter That's the first time I've used that word in the last few months. You can find the best team in the province of Alberta right now online at SherwoodDodge.com, StAlbertDodge.com. We kicked off the show with this conversation yesterday. American President Joe Biden announcing that if you're in the United States, if you're carrying student loan debt, and if you make less than $125,000 a year, you're going to see forgiveness of up to $10,000 of your federal student loans. It immediately prompted some praise, some criticism, and it gets people talking about their own loan experience. That's the case with our next guest, uh, one of Canada's certainly most respected culture writers and broadcasters, Elamine Abdul-Mahmoud, is a senior culture writer with BuzzFeed News. He's the host of the Pop Chat podcast on the CBC, and he's the author of the widely acclaimed and best-selling memoir released back in may son of elsewhere thanks so much for making time for us and welcome to real talk my pleasure man thank you for having me absolutely i i love how how honest you were about your own student loan experience because for most people a conversation like this has to get out of the big government sense people want to be able to talk about how the loan or the post-secondary experience impacted them personally for you it was a a decade-long journey after graduation 
Sure was. So listen, I graduated in 2011. Um, I paid it off at the end of 2020. Um, so like about nine and a half years to sort of pay off a $45,000 debt. Um, I'm really proud of the fact that I paid it off, but also I really struggled. And I, you know, um, I write for BuzzFeed News, it's an American sort of website. And so I was sort of using my experience to write for an American audience about the fact that like, look, if you are mad about student debt forgiveness, then you don't have your priorities straight because the idea that like just because you suffer to pay off your student debt doesn't mean that everybody else should suffer. And this notion that, you know, you should have to pay your dues in this very specific way is like so outdated in terms of like what we can, you know, look around us and say the people who are spending their money paying off the student debt are not able to save to buy houses, are not, are not able to save to just have a savings sort of like a little, um, any kind of like nest egg that they can sit on. Um, it's uh, student debts end up becoming a problem for a lot of people's lives, especially in America. You know, I know some folks in the U.S. with like, like literally $100,000 student debt that they continue to service every month that they have no idea if they'll ever be able to pay off because it just keeps increasing because they can never get out from under like the interest kind of uh, older. It's kind of this joke though, isn't it? When we, when we talk about the older generations and the, and the cliche is like, you know, when I was young, we had to walk through driving snow, you know, oh, every, sure. you know, every single morning to school, it was uphill both ways. Today's generation and every generation says this today's younger generation has no appreciation of what we did, what we endured or how we, earned our stripes or paid our dues we do want to see other people i don't want to use the word necessarily suffer but we do want to no, see other people suffer. we do want to see other people suffer if we suffer there's something about the way we're hardwired as humans at least some of us yeah. I think it's because we don't know how to assess somebody else's hard work. We can only assess our own, right? It's kind of like, oh, this was hard for me, so this will be hard for you, so you must go through this. We have no conception of the ways that hard changes from generation to generation. So the idea of graduating university and finding yourself underemployed, even though you've been promised a dream of saying, hey, if you just go to university, you'll be able to afford the life that you want, no problem. Um, that's a very different kind of difficulty than the difficulty that older generations grew up in. But certainly it is a difficulty that some people have to labor under and maybe labor under for like a whole decade or so. There's no appreciation of the ways that those dynamics have changed. Um, you know, one, I mean, like, let's look at the Canadian context, for example. One in six insolvencies was because of student debt. Uh, the average student debt in this country is not nearly as high as the average student debt in the U.S. I think the average in, in Canada is like something like $26,000. Mm. That's still pretty high. It's a right? lot. Like that's, still, that's still a lot of money. And, like, let's not forget, like, at least until as recently as 2021, um, the NDP was pushing the liberals to forgive um, up to $20,000 of student debt for people making 60 grand or less. Um, I don't know if that policy plank is still something that they're advocating for, but there was a moment we were having a, a somewhat serious conversation in this country about what it would mean to forgive student student loan, um, just like the general sort of student loan debt in this country. We kind of stopped having that conversation. I'm not sure why, because, you know, many people still have to struggle to, to, to pay it off. Well, it seems to me like, uh, I mean, you know, I see you on national television, radio commenting all the time on, on why <laughs> things seem to be halted in their tracks. And typically it's because it's politically unpalatable, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. even if you want to reference the federal NDP, we saw Jack Meet Singh, I, I, I think maybe feeling 
feeling like he's been cast into the shadows after reaching this this uh, do I call it a landmark uh, a cooperation agreement with the federal liberals to, to essentially sure. keep them propped up for the next few years. But they did it with conditions. And Mr. Singh just a few weeks ago or a couple of weeks ago was, was saying, hey, hey, like, let's not forget about these conditions. And in particular, right. he was talking about dental care. And he said, if we right. don't see movement on this, we will withdraw our support. So we know that that's a priority there. I wonder if maybe the idea of forgiving student loan debt partially or entirely in Canada is so politically unpalatable that that after the focus groups have chimed in and after the MPs have knocked on the doors in their ridings, mm-hmm. uh, maybe they're gritting their teeth a little bit and realizing not everybody wants it. I'm just speculating. I, I mean, listen, if- I would speculate that maybe the issue has not had the same kind of lobbying power that it, ha- is, it has had in the U.S. I think, like, this has been an issue for the new left, um, what some people call the new left, for, like, the last probably, like, year and a half or so. Ever since um, the Biden administration first paused the pay- repayments for student debt, and then they sort of began resuming again, um, this has kind of become, you know, one of the boulders that the left has been trying to sort of push up. I don't know if we've had the same kind of advocacy for it because you would actually think that it'd be a relatively easy political win um, to at least like advocate for something like this. Um, having said that, you know, I would say that the NDP, ever since achieving that deal um, earlier this winter, has been um, how do we say this? A bit gun shy. A bit gun shy in terms of like showing up with a shopping list. I mean, even the idea of you know demanding that dental care happens by the end of this year. Man, it is like almost September. Yeah. I don't understand how anything resembling like even a commitment to send vouchers in place of a deal by the end of this year, that's going to be difficult to pull off. Like we are really running out of time um, in terms of the NDP seeing that promise. So if they if they really mean it um, in terms of saying like this is a red line for us and we'll not cross, we certainly have not been hearing about that. Um, so adding something else to the shopping list, I think it would have been a natural move for the NDP to make probably way back in February when they made when they made the deal to begin with. But they have been a little bit gun shy about using it and using it kind of meaningfully. Mm. Uh- we talked earlier about how a conversation like this or an announcement from, you know, the, the most influential or powerful person on planet Earth talking about student yeah. loan forgiveness is going to prompt all kinds of conversations like, number yeah. one, the one you're having with us. What should Canada do or what's the landscape like in Canada? And then obviously spinoffs, bigger picture, like in, in yeah. Denmark and Finland and Iceland and Norway and Sweden, where essentially uh, post-secondary education is either free or at a very low cost. I mean, in Norway, University studies free of charge to all students, regardless of study level or nationality. In other words, you can go to Norway if you're not Norwegian and they'll pick up your post-secondary tab. Can you see a world in Canada where this becomes a priority? I know that cost wise, it would potentially be prohibitive. Sure. Uh, but I also think you could make some compelling arguments about the value of it, uh, most especially with regards to removing some of the very significant barriers that stand in the way of some of society's most marginalized but most promising young citizens. Sure. I mean, listen, the financial arguments are are what they are. So they're sort of like more in the weeds. I mean, even the social arguments of the value of education, I think like that is like a fair argument to get into. But I think there's a moral argument to be had. I think there's a moral argument to be had about a generation, my generation and the younger generations, who have been sort of told a story, right? Told a story about the potential of university specifically. Um, told a, but, but sort of the story that like, if you go to university, then this will be your ticket to a better life. 
Um, that has been the case for many people. But the people who have graduated university with student debt have sort of, some of them have found themselves living for the servicing of the student debt in ways that maybe they didn't expect. Um, and it sort of sets you back in all the other ways of life. And I think there's an idea that like maybe we as a society lied to them and maybe the way to make um, repairs for that lie is to say, and now we will forgive that debt because it is no longer necessarily true that a university or college education is the key to a better life. We've seen in the US university enrollment is down. Um, it sort of has been down since 2020. Um, it, it took another tumble last year and another tumble this year. Um, that's an interesting trend downwards that you can no longer attribute to just the pandemic. It's probably like a larger social shift to say, you know what, you can accomplish a lot of things in life and you don't you need a university to do Yeah. Things, right? And like, do we disincentivize going to university um, through sort of incentivizing something else? Yeah, maybe, but I think you still have to figure out what to do with a generation of people in debt um, for the choices that they made because of the promises that they were given. And can you still make those promises to them? I don't think you can. And I think that alone is like a moral argument for, for you know, it's, a, it's essentially a refund on the promise that you were once sold because it's no longer true. It's no longer true that, you know, going to university will just magically be your ticket into the next life. I had to wait 10 years um, before I could sort of begin diverting a significant chunk of my income um, away from paying off the student debt. And like, listen, like the day that I got that email from OSAP being like, how long would you like to take, you know, to repay this thing? Um, I slid that dial all the way to the end. I was like, I'll take the maximum number of years because I have no idea whether I'll even, whether I'll even be able to afford these payments or not. Um, I'm like, eventually I got a good enough job that I could do that. But, you know, as a result, a lot of other things kind of had to sort of like take a backseat. And like, I don't know how many people in my generation would be able to finally own houses um, if they didn't have to sort of spend their, their most immediate post-graduation years living for servicing the student debt. Yeah, I just I was going to ask you, like, how do you think your life may have been different had you not been paying off? For, I mean, you're you're essentially paying off like an 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 entry class BMW. Like you're, you're paying <laughs> off, a, you know, you're paying off almost fifty k. That tells you where my priorities are. But but sure, uh, yeah. but but it could be RSPs. It could be opening up a small business. It could be like you said, putting together a down payment on a house or or yeah. whatever. Uh, for you, when you look back uh, as a young man at that time, and then over the next ten years, where, where do you think you'd be different? To I mean, obviously you're experiencing career success, but but what would have your yeah. process? Do you think been? I mean, like, leaving my career success outside of it, I think, like, if somebody just had a regular career, they would, like, and, like, they were repaying back the same amount that I was repaying, but they didn't, suddenly didn't have to. I think, like, I would have been able to own a house six years ago before houses, you know, the housing prices got absurd. Um, I think, like, there's a lot of people in my generation who would say that, like, it's the student loans that sort of took them the longest because they couldn't, they felt like they couldn't start saving um, for a house until... Um, until they had their, their, their student debt paid off because it was like the biggest sort of thing on their on their pay sheet every, every month. Dwayne's watching us live. He says public education, like public health care, should be accessible to those who need it, as in yeah. all of us, not just for those who have money to pay for it. How important, this might be an obvious question, but I don't want to take it for granted. I don't want to assume it is. How important yeah. do you think it is to have the income threshold? Like the president yesterday was very clear saying this is, he says, we don't want to be forgiving the loans of people that attend the Ivy. He says this isn't for like Yale and Princeton and Harvard. Sure. Uh, these are for people that are making under 125 grand a year. How important do you think that is to sell this to the public? 
I think that you don't want to appear like you're giving a tax break to people who don't need the tax break, right? Like that, that's sort of like, that's the biggest anxiety that someone like a Joe Biden would have. And that's understandable. But the numbers show us that the people who attend the Harvards and the Yales are not really taking out the student loans. Like not, you know, like, or they get like a lot of support from the universities themselves. I think um, in total of the federal student debt borrowers, it was 0.3% went to an Ivy League school. That's impossibly small of the 45 million people who have student debt in America. Um, 0.3, you know, 0.3%. Um, I think it's understandable that you don't want any stories in the press of the 0.3% of people who went to an Ivy League and then had their debt forgiven and they're doing wonderful in life. Right. But look, I'm not even saying that university doesn't get you a wonderful career eventually. I think that's probably true for a lot of people. but there is a cost to that start. There's a cost to that start. And sometimes that cost is too high. And like you hear it all the time. You know, I, I work with people um, who have debts that are like, they have a $195,000 student debt. They- 195? 195. And it didn't start off being 195, but there was something like 7% um, interest rate, right? So it just keeps growing because they've been paying this thing off for 10, oh. 15 years, right? So like you just- it just kind of keeps accumulating because there's no way you can pay enough monthly to get out from under the interest rates. No, so you got to win the lottery. Like it's, it's, it's such a, it's not a financial planning move, but like what's the other answer? And these are people who like, you know, functionally are very, very successful. They make very good money, but a lot of their money goes to paying off student debt and it will continue to be the case for the rest of their life because that's not going to change. Mm. Um, People loved and love uh, your memoir, Son of Elsewhere, a memoir in pieces. Yeah. Uh, I think it was released back in May, if I'm remembering yes. correctly. Uh, you arrived in Canada with your family at age 12, right before the teenage experience from Sudan. And yeah. uh, I love it. You, you described the 401, which is like maybe the most famous freeway in Canada as your first yeah. friend. I mean, you did, your, your writing's incredible. What, what I you. think is, is amazing about it is this insight into, you know, you're a senior culture writer at BuzzFeed, which is a very culturally significant platform. I mean, BuzzFeed itself is kind of like a cultural phenomenon in a way. But here you are providing insight into how you had to figure out the culture uh, as a young man. I mean, here we are yeah. talking, you're talking about how Canadians feel about this or whether the federal government feels yeah. ab about this. What an exercise uh, in putting this book together, I imagine. Uh, how have you felt about the response? I mean, I've seen it reviewed in the New York Times. Everybody's just talking about what a, a significant uh, work of literature it is. I mean, you're described as one of the most beloved media personalities of your generation. What was the process like and what's been some of the most meaningful feedback? Well, listen, if somebody calls you one of the most beloved media personalities, you should run. Like, that's like <laughs> the natural reaction to that. That's not, there's no one that can sustain that kind of phrase. Is that so a Lisa LaFlamme reference? I don't know. If, you, yeah. No, you should just run, in, like generally. Like yeah. if someone was like, try to say that many nice things about you. He's like, okay, we can't handle this, yeah. run away. Um, listen, the reaction to the memoir has been um, incredible. It's been really humbling. Um, I think anyone who puts out a book in the world is like reasonably, like I'm really hoping this does well, you know? Um, but it's uh, it's exceeded my wildest dreams. I've just kind of been in a in a in a haze of gratitude for for three months running, you know. And like, there's going to be some more um, book sort of tour events this fall, so I think that'll be really fun, really exciting too. Um, so I'm yeah, I've just been grateful. It's well, it's, been a, great. it's a very cool series of essays. Um, ha have you heard? 
from from other people that have had the, the Canadian immigrant experience that have maybe shared with you that it's helped either them or better articulate their experience or it's helped maybe uh, they're they're Canadian, so to speak. I, I I don't mean that how it sounds. Everyone's Canadian this year, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah. People that yeah. were born here on Canadian soil, they they didn't grow up in Sudan or Rwanda yeah. or Syria or wherever. Um, yeah. that it's bridged a gap with some people and facilitated some understanding. Yeah, like that's honestly been probably the most rewarding part of you know the book responses. People who are sharing like how this resonated with them, how this sort of interacted with their own understanding of Canadianness. Um, and open their eyes to maybe some things that they haven't thought about, about what it would feel like in those like first tender few years of arriving um, in this country. And so it's been, I've heard some from some other first generation, second generation immigrants who said, you know what, this is exactly my experience to a T. Um, and I feel really grateful that it's been represented in this one. So that's also been amazing. Well, I'm, I'm thrilled for you. I'm grateful that the book has seen such success and I, and I wish you, uh, continued success. Um, we'll remain fans. And, uh, thanks, and thanks man. so much. Thanks for having me. Well, it's awesome to have you on the show, and I look forward to our next conversation. Elamine, have a wonderful rest of your week. For sure. Me too. Thank you, you got it. Yeah, that's Elamine abdul can uh, You can find him on Twitter at Elamine88. And, of course, his book, Son of Elsewhere, a memoir in pieces, well worth your time. You can pick it up wherever you grab great books. These conversations happen because of sponsors like... LandscapeEdmonton.ca That's where you'll find Eden Landscaping They're bringing outdoor spaces to life A custom landscape builder It's not too late To bring your outdoor space to life To get that project done Before fall and then winter hits Whether it's excavation, retaining walls Maybe you want to get an outdoor kitchen John, maybe you want to get your Pizza forno oven In before fall So you can have those Fabulous winter retreats in your own space your backyard space yeah and heat up your clothes before you go to work is that what you do you fold your jeans you put them in the pizza that's a terrible remember the idea. seinfeld episode with no Kramer? what yeah where he's always drying his clothes because he likes them to be warm every day when he gets up and then he goes to the pizza oven the pizza can i ask are you are you there's been there's been about three seinfeld references i'm obsessed two like, of them yeah. off camera over the past couple of days are you currently like re-watching seasons of seinfeld or so I fall asleep to them every night. So I'm kind uh, of, kind of living in the show while I sleep. Fair. Yeah. yeah, it takes you into dreamland. <laughs> Somebody told me that they fall asleep listening to Real Talk every night, and I said I don't know if that's a compliment or not. It doesn't sound like a compliment. I get enough Real Talk at work. I, just, <laughs> I can't be dreaming about it all night. <laughs> in landscaping's like, would you mind repeating our? Yeah, it's landscapeedmonton.ca. That's where you can find Mike and his team. Just a bunch of beauties. Local Environmental has been keeping it local for a quarter century. Still family owned. Alberta and Saskatchewan. You need to know that whether you're looking for a temporary or more permanent bin, whether you're a retailer, a small business owner, or maybe just a private citizen that needs garbage and recycling management, maybe you need water hauling or landfill services, your best bet is to request a, request a quote today at localenvironmental.ca. Don't forget, they present trash talk every single Friday here on the show. 
We have some fiery submissions, but we have room for a couple more. If you want to send us your trash talk today at talk at ryanjesperson.com, it's presented, of course, by Local Environmental Services. And at Dairy Queen, in particular, the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park, they want to remind you for a limited time, the blizzard of the month for the month of August is Coffee Crisp. But of course, they have their limited time summer lineup featuring the very cherry chip blizzard treat, the Coffee Crisp, the Girl Guide cookie. You've got the awesome, the Reese's. Oh my God. Just go see for yourself, ladies and gentlemen. I could pick one at random to recommend it with the confidence you'll enjoy it. A blizzard from the Dairy Queens in Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, and of course in Sherwood Park at Baseline Road. Weren't you on the uh, cotton candy there for a little, weren't you? I tried the cotton candy. Uh, I felt like I wanted to step out of my comfort zone. I used to only go with Smarties Blizzards. That's it. Feels like a you and Wyatt kind of blizzard the cotton candy Maybe yeah we did it together yeah you know? we did the strawberry cheese as a family we heated the uh the dirt pie one which has like the gummy worms in it carrie got the strawberry cheesecake and i got the cotton candy carrie kind of looked at me she's like really i feel like she was doing like a personality assessment <laughs> or like she was like cotton candy really and uh it was good uh, not the all-time greatest yeah uh but if you're into cotton candy give it a try what do you have to lose you seem like a coffee blizzard kind of guy yeah well i, I i'm open-minded you know, I'm open minded. When it comes to blizzards, uh, I've explored score. <laughs> I mean, I'm happy to get into the different types of blizzards. It's a win win every single time. Speaking of treats, you and I had an impromptu conversation yesterday about our all time top. Heather Thompson joined us, a consumer behavior expert. We're talking mm-hmm. about malls. We were talking about Zellers. If you missed it, make sure you check it out. And we started talking about food courts, I think probably because you and I were both very hungry. And we started talking about our top food court destination. Ah. And you told us it was Sabaro for it you. It used to be, yeah. It used to be the first place I go into the mall, I got to go to the. I don't remember Max. you saying used to be. Well, yeah, because, you know, now I don't eat the dairy. So. Right. Ah, so there's not a lot I can eat there. Oh, but John. before, before, that would be my first place to hit up. So I tweeted it out. I said, what's your top go to in the mall food court for infamous? For Johnny, it's Sabaro. For me, it's taco time, I said. Did you happen to see who replied to the tweet? Sabaro themselves. Sabaro themselves <laughs> replied from their blue checkmark account. And I mentioned this. I said, I know there's like the thicker cut, but I would always still take the two slices and. Yeah. Yeah. But no, they're talking to me when they say, you know, some locations serve it. It's called stuffed pizza. I'm pretty mm. sure. I'm pretty sure. Were they maybe talking about the, the taco reference to or you think it was simply? I was surprised. I, think it's both. I was surprised you didn't do the fold over. I was surprised you just stacked two pieces. Uh, in some parts of the world, they call that carbo loading, John. <laughs> uh, I also heard from Cole, and I appreciate Cole. Um, this is this is going to be a, a a comment that you're going to you're you're, you're going to say. How are they going to integrate profanity into a conversation about food courts? I'm just going to read what Cole sent us. I referred yesterday to Taco Time as the Eaton's. Of the mall. You did. And I referred to Taco Bell as the Walmart. Mm -hmm. And there's no slight to anyone. It's just a fact. One of them's a little more top shelf. One of them's a little more accessible. One of them's a little more sort of like, you know, a bargain kind of a thing. And Cole reached out to me and he said, buddy, Taco Time is shitty Mexican food. And Taco Bell is a flavorful symphony of food science (laughs) that is more adjacent to actual Mexican cuisine. And so, Cole, I appreciate your comment, and thanks for being in touch with the show. As mentioned, tomorrow uh, we're going to get into what is absolutely serious business. You might use the phrase deadly serious, and some are actually concerned that that's where this is going. It's undeniably a coordinated campaign, threats of violence and hate that are being aimed at women in journalism in particular, 
women of color in journalism. That's going to be the Friday roundtable, our traditional Real Talk roundtable tomorrow. If this is something that's resonating with you, if you're paying attention to Erica Eiffel, who's going to join us, to Rachel Gilmore from Global News, who's been sharing some of the messages she's been receiving. If you saw what Kristen Rayworth posted, a political staffer, just this week about a threat their office saw, you won't want to miss it. You can let us know your thoughts ahead of time. We'll do our best to work them into the show. We'll see you again soon. Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson, Executive Producer Josh Dunford, Technical Producer John Hicks, General Manager Katie Cook Chivers, Account Coordinator Lawrence Durlego, Human Resources Lena Shepard, Website Design Mike Johnston, VoiceOver by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Sapria Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Brandy Morin, Anne Castleman, Corey Hogan, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Member Emerita, Julie Rohr. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Soto, and Nakota Sioux, home to the Métis settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is a Relay Project. For more, check out ryanjasperson.com.